Hey gang, it's me, Ben. Uh, this is the last time you're going to have to hear about the Thrilling Adventure Hour Kickstarter. Uh, we only have six days left if you're listening to this upon its release. Uh, and we are so close to getting to make our concert film. Uh, we need less than $50,000 in the next six days, and then we'll make this awesome concert film. We'll shoot it at Largo at the Coronet. People from all over the world can see what our show looks and feels like it's you know the podcast is great we love the podcast but it's a whole different experience getting to really see the show and enjoy the actors that way um so please help us uh, help support the thrilling adventure our kickstarter campaign uh there are a lot of cool rewards on there for your money um some things for you la folks uh we're doing a semi-private recording of one of the pieces of the Thrilling Adventure Hour at the Nerdist Space starring Paul F. Tompkins, Paget Brewster, Linda Cardellini, uh, Molly Quinn from Castle, um, John Ross Bowie uh, from The Big Bang Theory, Matt Gorley from the Super Ego Podcast. Uh, it should be really cool, and it's like a little stripped-down performance, uh, and attendance is limited, so check that one out. Um, we're releasing all of our podcasts plus bonus material because they're starting to disappear from iTunes because iTunes only lets you have 100 episodes of any one podcast. So you can get all of our podcasts in one package with like unreleased stuff, uh, which is pretty fun. Uh, there's signed portraits, there's signed posters, there's signed scripts, stuff like that. You can chat with people over Skype. Check out the Kickstarter page, best way to find it is to go to thrillingadventurehour.com or to follow us on Twitter at ThrillingADV or like us on Facebook. Thank you. Uh, this podcast that you're about to hear was recorded in our recent trip to Brooklyn. We brought the Thrilling Adventure Hour there, and while I was there, I got to record a couple of these Nerdist Writers panels uh, that benefited A26LA. Uh, this is the second of those panels. There were some audio issues with the first, but I'll hopefully get that out soon. Um, so this is the second panel with some of the funniest people I know in New York. I think you're really going to enjoy it. They're a charming group. Find them all on Twitter and follow them. Uh, they're, they're really great, and they're all really great writers, too. Um, I need to thank Rachel Berkey, who helped put this together. I could not have done the New York panels without her. She was uh, just integral to the whole thing, found the venue, helped me set everything up. Uh, so that was awesome. Thank you, Rachel. Um, and uh, this, the only warning I need to give you is that this podcast, the volume levels are a little quieter than usual, um, but it shouldn't be too much trouble. Uh, you can still definitely hear everything. And so thanks to everyone who came out in Brooklyn. That was really fun. We can't wait to do more Brooklyn shows, both of the Thrilling Adventure Hour and the Nerdist Writers panel. And enjoy. Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Yeah. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel series, an informal chat about writing and the business and process of writing. Each and every panel benefits A26LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. For more information on A26LA, visit A26LA.org. 
I'm your moderator, Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program in the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on iTunes and via Nerdist.com. Uh, I've written for the series Super Ninjas and Supernatural. All right, here we are at 61 Local. Welcome, everybody. Joe, Joe has something to tell you about 61 Local. I was volunteered to do this. 61 Local is a convivial public house celebrating locally crafted food, drink, and the people who make it. 61 Local regularly hosts programming and events spotlighting the spirited Brooklyn community. Check out our public calendar for upcoming classes and shindigs, including the monthly readings with the Folding Chair Series, Back Fat Variety Show, and Homebrew Tastings every Sunday through December. Make sure to grab something to eat and drink from the regularly rotating lineup of craft beers, Long Island wines, and East Coast snacks. Thank you. Yay! Thank you. It sounded like a Garrison Keeler does Brooklyn <laughs> event. This is one sound effect. Uh, before we jump in, let's uh, start here with Stephen. Please introduce yourself. Uh, tell us a little bit about who you are, why we know what things you've written. or Oh, uh, my name is Stephen Falk, and uh, I wrote on a show called Weeds for a long time. Have you guys seen this show? Uh, we just ended our eight-year run uh, like a week ago, um, or a week and a half ago. And uh, now I am in New York. I live in L.A. normally, but I'm here um, making a show for NBC, the National Broadcasting Corporation. We peacock comedy, y'all, uh, which is, I guess, their new slogan. It's, slogan. it's such a weird slogan. We can't figure out what it means. It's we and then the peacock logo, comedy. Every time I see it, I think it's dirty. So we're like either we caught comedy, right. but that can't be it. So we, we're proud of our comedy, I guess. We're very proud of our comedy. Um, no one's going to listen to this, but it's, a, no, no. It, I mean, at NBC, but, uh, so I'm making a network TV show that I'm show running and created for the first awesome. time. Um, and we're shooting it in New York and we have a mid season replacement and we don't know when we're going to be on the air. Uh, and it takes place in satellite radio, like Sirius XM type thing where there's a lot of different, different kind of channels and genres. What is it called? Have you said the uh, title it's called yet? next caller? No, I haven't said the title because I don't really, I don't really like the title that much. Um, they made it up. It was called Satellite, which I thought was a cooler title. Because it's dual meaning. Because satellites circle or orbit around, e- around things. And these people do, too. Um, but it's called Next Caller. Now. And uh, it's really fun to make network comedy in New York. Um, yeah, all right, good. All. We'll talk about that's that me. in a minute. Yeah, that's that's good. Joe. Jeez. How do I follow that? How do you follow Um... <clears throat> I'm Joe Randazzo. I, uh, for some years, was the editor at The Onion. And now, Woo! thanks. Thank you. Um, and I uh, listen to Michael Nyman soundtracks on the way over here. So I'm, like, elated but terrified to be here. If you guys know Michael Nyman, anybody know? A little couple. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, film called Ravenous. We're not here to talk about Michael Nyman. Um, no, but we'll do like an hour on Ravenous. Yeah, sure. Um, it's in your notes. Right. And here. now I'm, uh, a bunch of us from The Onion have gone off um, to start a new website uh, for Adult Swim, which we'll be uh, doing, which will be launching soon, in a couple of weeks, actually, and we'll have more to say publicly about that in That's a couple amazing. of weeks. This, so. this actually will not come out until uh, like mid-October. 
if that. Exactly when so it's going to happen. October you may, 16th. If, you've, well, if you trust these people enough, we no. know half the people here. If you trust them enough to talk about it, you can, you can maybe talk about it a little bit. But Sure. All right. Well, let's see. Um, you, not now. Do you guys know what embargo we'll wait till we means? we come back around. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, you got me. It's a lie. I'm not do, I'm not, I don't have anything. I'm not doing anything. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get back to it. Okay. You can decide how much you want to divulge. Uh, sure. Casey. Hi, my name is Casey St. Ange. I'm a former staffer at The Late Show with David Letterman. Heard and, of it. Uh, you know that guy. Yes. <laughs> um, I was also a writer throughout the entire run of the Rosie O'Donnell show. I don't know if any of you were <laughs> unemployed at that time, homesick from school. How, uh, how long was that on? That was six, seven years. I'm asking him because he's my husband, which we'll get to. But you, for the for the podcast listener, she's not pointing to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> my husband Timmy, um, and. Uh, Post-Rosie, I worked a lot of places, um, but maybe a show that you guys are familiar with is Best Week Ever. I was a writer there, and uh, I sort of helped co-create Best Week Ever with Paul F. Tompkins, which uh, is my one of my favorite shows that I've ever worked on. Short-lived, but I think great. And uh, now I'm the producer of this show on Bravo called Watch What Happens Live, hosted by... Network executive Andy Cohen, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a young adult novelist. If uh, yeah, absolutely. Tell tell the name of your book. Um, you remember uh, it? <laughs> I do remember it. Your first uh, book. The name of my book that's currently out is called uh, Jane Jones' Worst Vampire Ever. Yeah. Have you guys? Are you familiar with it? Yes. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, you've all read it. <laughs> you know it. The, you will now. You'll go pick it up. <laughs> it's it's really terrific. It's a lot and of fun. can I say Casey's uh, the sweetheart of Twitter? Yes. Think, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> at Casey with an I, yeah, which is what I call her now. Right, <laughs> I think you have to. Hey, at two Casey, eyes. Do we have celery? <laughs> with two eyes. Good I just one. want to point out that Casey's microphone cover uh, of her SM58 has uh, apparently blood on it. It looks like a <laughs> yeah, yeah. blood stain on the on the microphone hey, screen. Hater was here before I you. I think it's sexy lipstick. Because <laughs> Gigi Allen's dead, right? <laughs> Nice. Anyway. Matt, please introduce yourself. <laughs> uh, I'm Matt Debenham. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm an author. From books. From, 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 I'm here to represent books tonight. Uh, adult books. Uh, grown-up books, rather. I yeah, yeah. have to make a distinction. Um, I'm the author of a short story collection called uh, The Book of Right and Wrong, and a Kindle single called The Advocate, and I'm working on a novel. Oh. And I teach. Tell, where do you teach? Uh, I teach at uh, Western Connecticut State University in the writing program, and I also teach at the Westport Writers Workshop, where we live in uh, Westport, Connecticut. We're not rich. <laughs> you have to tell everyone that. You have to give the disclaimer. We, um, go, we live in the neighborhood next to the highway. This, this, is, actually a, this is actually kind of a good jumping-off point. Um, I assume you're teaching writing. I am. How do you teach writing? Um, slowly, so that they keep coming back. Sure. Well, you have a lot of time to fill, too. Yeah, I got, I got three <laughs> Not just hours. tonight. <laughs> I got three hours at a shot. Um, how you teach writing is, is you work on, I mean, it, the way I do it, it's a workshop format. And so um, the students, uh, they, they write ahead of time. They send it to their classmates ahead of time who read it ahead of time. And then in class, we discuss the pieces. Um, so you've probably seen the, the TV shows or movies where the instructor reads the piece and then everyone comments on it. We don't do that. We read it ahead of time. And then we get to it. 
Um, and we, you know, I have students of all levels, and so some of my students are are really there, and they're writing on, you know, they're writing novels that I, I can absolutely envision being published like next year, um, and then others aren't quite there yet, and that's that's totally fine. Uh, and I and I teach a mix because in the uh, in the college program I teach I teach younger people, and in the in the workshop I get a lot of people like forty and over. Um, talk to us, and and we'll kind of go down the line with this. This came up on the previous panel. Um, you know, as writers, we all deal with giving notes very often, but receiving notes as well. And you have to have sort of a thick skin to be a writer, although there's a lot of anxiety involved also. Um, talk to us about, uh, Matt, we'll start with you, but I'd like to hear from everyone uh, about notes you've received. Uh, guiding these kids, not just these kids, uh, not just in... Uh, <laughs> They're people. Right, these humans. <laughs> who are writing, uh, not just in what they're writing, but in giving creative, uh, constructive criticism to their peers. Yes, uh, and that's a hard one. I've, I've, never had, I've never made anyone cry, but I've had people cry in the workshop sure. because of other people's comments. Um, and, uh, you know, what I always tell people is, and it's, it's, a, it's a silly workshop thing, but it really works, is, you know, when you're talking about a piece, talk about it in the present tense so that it feels like it has a future versus this didn't feel right to me or this didn't work. You know, if you say this doesn't really fit here, it feels like, okay, but it will, you know, you can, if you work on it, you can make it do, do this. Um, in terms of how I approach uh, critiquing my students' work, um, you know, I, I really, I don't look at it all the time. I don't, I don't tend to correct grammar and things. I'm really looking at, you know, in this scene, are you getting at what you want to get at. Do your characters have, you know, these different agendas that they want to accomplish? Um, are those things coming across? Did you even bother describing this? Um, you know, and I, and I always do it with a lot of affection because uh, I, I had a great instructor named Alice Madison in my MFA program who used to say things like, it, well, she would write in her letters. She would, she would write these letters to us uh, critiquing our work and say things like, you know, if you were here when I was reading this, I would have thrown you out the window. <laughs> but because I'd had workshop with her, I knew her voice, and I knew she had this like this tough little Brooklyn lady voice, and so it was said with a lot of affection. It was said with a lot of like, I'm frustrated with this, but I know you can do better. And you know, it's there's I, I think when you always look at things as though there is a future to it, that 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 opens up a lot of possibility, um, not only for for you the the critiquer, but the person being critiqued. Um, versus saying, well, this is shit. You know, that's not a very constructive comment. You know, if you say this is shit or this doesn't work, that just ends there. And it doesn't offer anything in terms of, well, what might you do mm-hmm. to make this better? And I, I do the same thing when I'm reading friends' work. We're, you know, we're working on books together, and, and, and we offer each other the same kind of criticism. Like, it's not just, you know, this, this doesn't work or this is bad or this is ugly. It's, you know, you have to give some semblance of, of well, here's why it doesn't work, but here's what I think you could do. Mm-hmm. It, it makes me think of, and were you going to weigh in on this? I was going to just say that I remember in uh, writing workshops in college that used to just say, the details are great, if you didn't have anything else to say, and it was shitty. So like, great details. It's got an and interesting sort voice. Of, sort of leave it there. Because there was always that one, um, usually a woman, who would basically like write her diary entries in the... Like directly in there, and it would would include no. It would just include like self injury and like really personal stuff, and so you'd have to be like boys hurt themselves too. Boys do, but they don't write about it. But they don't write about it. They would write fantasy fiction where they're like where they're like uh, having sex with like. I was once in a writer's workshop 
uh, before I knew what kind of writer exactly I wanted to be. And a gentleman took a gun out during his, his reading to demonstrate how motherfucking crazy he was. I, I mean, at, at the time, I hadn't... I hadn't gotten to the point, I guess, where I valued my own life because I remember at the time being like, holy shit, this crazy guy's got to go. And I remember just coming home because we were boyfriend and girlfriend at that time and being like, guess what happened? A guy pulled out a gun. But So it wasn't about cutting, but it was about, right. like, I might shoot you all up at the new school. So he, he pulled it out to make a point it was, during his... I, don't, I mean, it was like... It, I mean, the piece was not good. Let's be honest, and it was really? it was sort of. If you need to pull out a firearm to compliment, it was sort of your... some type of manifesto. I don't remember the specifics really? of it. I just remember the the gun and like. It, to be fair, he didn't point it directly at anyone, but he did hold up a piece. And the details were great. The I de- bet the detail of the gun. I obviously I've remembered it for twenty years. <laughs> My the best teacher I had was a guy named Rick Riken at uh, Emerson College. Oh, Fred Riken. Yeah, yeah. Fred Frederick Riken. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but he would treat every single thing that was written with that same exact present tense possibility. Even something that was really bad, he would always find some something and would never dismiss anything that anybody had written. And it just raised the elevated the level of discourse overall and sort of forced people um, to take every bit of writing seriously. Like, he would never dismiss anything that was written. And he gave the best notes also. But Fre- Frederick of- Riken uh, wrote a fantastic novel called The Lost Legends of New Jersey. Yeah. And I saw him read a brand-new story at the Providence Writers' Workshop, the Fine Arts Work Center, um, that he found out that morning had been accepted by The New Yorker. Uh, he's, he's an amazing writer. Fantastic Yeah, he's a great writer. writer. Yeah. And he has a cute dog, too. (laughs) Well, I think we're done here, then. Um, What Matt was talking about uh, in regard to giving feedback, uh, you know, and giving a feedback that can provide a creative jumping-off point or some sort of thing, uh, reminds me of the advice you often hear or the lessons you often hear from a comedy writer's room, which is not just to say no to something, but to either give something else, something better, to beat that joke. Uh, Can you guys talk about Stephen and Joe as well? And, And... uh, Casey, you can talk about some of these strange writers, room, but I have a more specific question for you. Uh, but talk about some of the comedy rooms you guys have been in. Well, I, I mean, I have a room in, uh, rule in my room that you can't shoot down an idea unless you have an alternate, or alternate pitch. Um, and it, it doesn't, it's not a hard and fast rule. Sometimes you just go, that doesn't work because that person... Uh, is not a uh, blimp and cannot fly. Um, but generally speaking, I, uh, for a comedy room, um, I, I, and I find that it, it, it makes the writers actually think harder, if that makes any sense, and be more efficient in their uh, note giving and their critique of a script, for instance. Um, I mean, I, I, for me, I, I know t- TV writing is a, is a little different, but I think that there is a sort of an old school philosophy in, in uh, comedy rooms that's, that is sort of giving way to, is sort of dying out, thankfully, but it's a very sort of guys club, like, like, haze the new guy, like, fuck you, that was a horrible pitch, and I'll go on the 10-minute diatribe about why you're a fucking idiot, and everyone will laugh, and you'll feel terrible, um, and hopefully that's giving way to something else, which I think is a more constructive way to make comedy. Mm-hmm. 
And that is actually nicer and su more supportive, but it's also more challenging. It's like, okay, that's a good joke, but why does that matter? Why do we care? Why does that work? Is there a twist on that? Um, I think maybe there's a more cerebral tone, hopefully, in comedy taking over. I would like to think. I'm not, I'm not sure that's true, but I, I would like to think. Have you seen No, I have <laughs> It'll be off the air by the time this... Part. It's cool. I work for the National Broadcasting Corporation. I'm peacocking comedy right now. I cannot comment on any show. Um, but, uh, I, you know, it, it, I think TV writing is... Uh, it, it's very hard to get critiqued in, in a room. And there is that sort of old-timey thing of thick skin, kid. Right. You know, I, I, I remember I went out for a show called Scrubs, and uh, the showrunner, Bill Lawrence, who's a great guy, but he was basically like, and this was like maybe seven years ago, he's like, I can't hire you, because the slot I have is for like a 24-year-old we can basically just make fun of, and stick in a room and make right cold opens for ten hours a day. <laughs> and he was like, I can't haze you like that. And for me, I have, I have four staff writers, I have probably five people under 20 on my staff, and but I treat them with exactly the same respect as veterans in my staff who've run the same show. There's not a hierarchy. Sure. Um, uh, there's only a hierarchy in getting assigned a script first. Right. But beyond that, everyone has to treat each other with respect. And, and that's the one thing that I won't, I, I, I just won't uh, take in my writer's room is people snarking and being shitty to each other. Because I just don't think... I like seeing people, you know, I'd be, I'd be watching the uh, lion versus a slave, but uh, I don't think it makes a good product in the end. If you have scared writers, people who are afraid to make a joke. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that we hear kind of both sides of that. We hear from the most dysfunctional rooms on these panels, which can create great shows. And then, you know, I go and talk to the Breaking Bad room who are all in love with each other. And you get a show like Breaking Bad. So. It's, it's interesting. Uh, Joe, tell us some, about uh, some of these uh, collaborative efforts you've been a part of. Uh, and again, specifically in comedy, how do you guys work together? How do you note each other? Well, I think um, for, what, for what we did at The Onion and for what we're doing now, there's sort of two rooms. There's the, the pitch room where you're t just pitching an idea. And oftentimes um, just silence will take care of it like there's no need to sort of be critical and you're you're just you know i mean at the onion and and we're doing this new comedy website as well you're you're pitching a lot of ideas mm -hmm. so the whole point is to get the best one percent of them um which means 98 or more percent of the ideas are just not as good so those can sort of die but they still have to come out and be part of the yeah um but uh, similarly to steven you know i i had the fortune of being able to put together my whole staff for this new venture. Um, and I just don't, I just feel that there's, I don't have the time or the patience, frankly, for like people who are dysfunctional or sort of overly moody. Or I don't think there's anybody who's a great enough comedy writer that you should ever have to put up with any kind of abusive or passive-aggressive, that's impossible to avoid, I guess, to a degree. Um, it sh I don't think that's sustaining. I don't think you can have a dysfunctional staff that it may burn bright for a couple years and have a few good laughs and a few great fart jokes, but in the, at the end, you're not feeling like you're 
creating something together. Yeah. Um, and it's similar with us. Like, if, if there's an idea, I don't have a rule. Maybe I'll say I do now. Um, <laughs> but you just naturally, because we enjoy each other, because we have chemistry, because we have respect, you naturally build on the ideas that you see something in. Like, somebody was pitching something today about a man who gets into a horrible accident and then he has... Um, cell phones implanted for his eyeballs, <laughs> which at first everyone's like, eh. but then we started investigating it and it wound up being the best idea of the day that we like turn into this whole big thing that we're probably not going to be able to do for various obvious reasons. But, <laughs> but just, you know, st- staying with an idea and investigating, giving it a little bit of respect and then seeing where the room can take it um, is way, to me, way more valuable than setting up any kind of weird macho thing but we do have one guy that we make fun of a lot but he deserves it he's not he's not in the room though he's uh, like an editor is he like, oh an editor yeah okay, well that's sure yeah he's young we don't pay him much <laughs> fuck him fuck him <laughs> no, but, that, but, but that's really true what joe says about um it, it takes i i feel like you you need one person sort of driving things but then someone will say something that sounds fucking retarded like cell phone eye guy um but if you, if you say, okay, no, but put your brains on that, see if that can go somewhere else or lead you somewhere, and you may have Cell Phone Eye Guy coming in 2013. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we peacock Cell Phone Eye Guy. Yeah. Uh, Casey, you are n- notoriously a monster um, yes. in the room. <laughs> Horrible to work with. Um, no, specifically what I'm curious about uh, from the experiences you've had is you've worked on these shows that are sort of a daily grind. Yes. You know, you guys are turning out product every day. Um, tell me about getting notes on those shows or, and then kind of just generating material for those shows. It's a lot less gentle than everybody's describing, and you really you have to develop this trust relationship with the, per, the people that you work with, um, that I had a, a writing partner when I was when I was at Rosie for all six years, and he's he's a guy, um, old Jewish comedy writer, cat skills type of guy, and we were partnered together just because we were the two newest, and there was nobody really else to to partner together, and we shared an office, and uh, he's 17 years old years older than me, and you know, which is like a weird thing. I was I was 23, 24 years old at the time, and. Uh, we developed such a strong relationship just based on, and it had to come really fast. It had to come within like, you know, four or five, six weeks where you had to be able to be like, no, you know, no, stop, start again. Because we were coming in at seven o'clock in the morning and going live at 10 o'clock come hell or high water. And it had to be, so it, it wasn't that, that gentle sort of like discussion that you have the luxury of having sometimes on, on other formats but what I have been really fortunate in in some cases, and especially with uh, with this one particular guy, is that we were like, at some point, we're like, okay, we're we were put together, but we're making a choice to like really love each other and support each other and know each other's. You know, he was he was like my work spouse. You know, like we're gonna support each other. I know your strengths. I know your weaknesses. We're gonna prop each other up, and we're gonna, you know, basically what we were doing was trying to keep each other from being fired constantly because that was that's a very real and particularly on that show it was it was a very real possibility and uh so 
and it's funny, even to this day, so many years later, like I move, we moved to Connecticut because, you know, to sort of be near him and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and even to this day, like we'll, we'll get, get together for lunch and we're still very much like that. Like, no, no, no. What you're saying? No. You know, so, um, yeah. She so, would call know. me his name during arguments. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true. But, you know... Uh, it, At least it, it was during arguments. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We didn't love each other that much. Um, but, yeah, so uh, a, lot less, a lot less gentle, and, uh, you know, you just... You have to be very definitive with each other, and you, you have to become very much a student of what will work. Mm-hmm. You know, which is sometimes... Sometimes it's kind of a bummer because you don't get to explore in those ways. Um, you're just talking about, like, you know, comedy, to me, is a lot like algebra. You know, the kind of comedy yeah. that I do. You know, you have you have a setup, you have a little bit of a development, and then you have a punchline at the end, especially for, like, a daily talk show, comedy variety show. And so you know that you're, you're starting out with that format and you know what works for your show and you know the, the most important thing is the voice of your, your talent, your host, because uh, as my first boss explained to me very early on, I was really lucky, you know, it doesn't matter how funny you are in this situation. If it is not right to be coming out of the person's mouth that you're trying to, to have say what you're writing, then it just doesn't matter. It's worthless. You've wasted everyone's time, which is, you know, that's, that's a harsh reality. But in that, in that daily world, that's sort of how it is. So you're working within those parameters and very often with someone standing over your, over your shoulder being like, is it done yet? Is it done yet? And especially on Rosie, I don't know. We, we wrote a lot of songs. <laughs> she said she liked to sing songs every day. And so it was a lot of like sitting at our desk, singing the tunes to songs and trying to write the words as fast as we could and then sprinting down the hall, you know, to get it to the prompter and, you know, and just if there's a typo in the song, God forbid, because it has not been rehearsed and, you know. Um, so, yeah, so it, it wasn't that sort of gentle nurturing um, that uh, that I'm, I'm envious of because, like, it, it has sort of made me, like, in that way, Joe is very sweet to say that I'm a sweetheart, but I'm, like, a little bit of a hard ass when it comes to, like, if I say that I want this in five minutes, I want it in five minutes, you know? So it's a, li- it's a little bit tough, and I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm a fast writer, it does, but, but it doesn't mean that, um, that it's not maybe always the best writing, you know? It's the difference between well, fast food and fine dining. Yeah, sometimes so. it's not about being yeah. the yeah. best. I so. mean, if you can turn out something of quality on the schedule that, you're, that you have to keep, that's amazing. Right. So residually, to this day, no matter what type of writing I do, I usually do it in some kind of like cranking it out, you know, really, really, you know, fast over the course of a few hours. And then I have to train myself to slow down like like these gentlemen. Yeah, I'm curious about the the writing habits of the rest of you. Now, you're working on a novel. Yeah. Tell us about your schedule. How do you how, how much do you get done? Well, I mean, not enough. Um, I write. Uh, I write for a few hours in the afternoon. That's my time. Uh, I we have kids. We have a schedule. I and you know I have stuff to do in the morning, work wise, um, and you know get the kids out to school and uh, wake this woman up because she gets home at two in the morning from her job because their show is live at eleven at night. Um, and then you know, I drop her off at the train at noon, noon thirty. Is that a time? Twelve thirty. Uh, and, and then I go to the library and I don't answer my phone and I don't check email or do internet or anything like that. And I'm just, I'm just writing, 
for two or three hours, but then I got to get home because the kids are getting home from school, you know. Um, so that's you know I don't know I was I was thinking about this on the way down I don't I know a lot of um, published uh, and successful novelists and short story writers and so forth people who work in books I don't know a single one of them who does only that for a living mm-hmm. you know and so we all have stuff we have to juggle and so I don't know anyone who's who's writing. Uh, books full time. Well, Stephen King. It, it seems <laughs> not even him. He goes out for walks sometimes. Oh, okay. uh, oh, fair enough. <laughs> the van is too late. Maybe the van is too late. That joke. Um, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know anybody who who doesn't have a similar schedule to that. Frankly, so yeah, yeah we work like a few but, hours a day. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, if you can even get in a couple hours a day and actually get work done yeah. during that, that's pretty impressive. And then I'm doing stuff at night because I after the kids go to bed, I've got I've got a certain number of hours uh, at night where I can you know I can finally I can go back and look over the stuff I did that day, or I can write new stuff, or I can I can read, or I can accidentally fall asleep. Uh, all these things might happen. Uh, but actually, you know, something Casey did mention is that is that she has uh, she has been a joke writer on demand for Joan Rivers, really? which is, is an example of that having to write quickly, having to write really quickly. Uh, and how, it's, it's just crazy. Yeah, please. yeah. How does that how does that work? How do you even get that call? First of all, um, I had worked on a pilot uh, for her. I. Well, you submitted... Uh, yeah, I had submitted um, the way... A couple of producer friends of mine had said, you know, we're working on this pilot with Joan Rivers. Um, you know, would you want to submit? And I was not working at the time, so I said, sure. And they said, the only catch is she wants it to be totally blind submissions because she knows some of her old friends are going to submit and she wants it to be completely fair. And uh, so I did the submission. And then uh, I'd also worked for this um, this English fellow, Graham Norton, who I consider he and Joan to sort of be like... Like they have like this, this simpatico, and I just remember when I would write for Graham, who I loved, um, because he was very, very trusting, um, and really, really just gave you credit for knowing what you were doing. Um, he would always say like, "I love this. Could you make it more vile? Could you make it more awful, more filthy?" And I and so I did the submission for Joan, and then I was like, you know, maybe I just want to go back over it and give it the Graham Norton more vile, more filthy <laughs> touch. And so I did, and I handed it in, and you know how that stuff goes. You, sometimes you hear back, sometimes you don't. It's really horrible. Um, and so my friends called me a couple weeks later, and they were like, oh, uh, funny story, Joan wants to hire you for that pilot. And they said, uh, she was like, I want to hire this guy, number 100. And uh, they were like, oh, okay, well, we'll hire her. She's not a guy, but she's, you know, she's a friend of ours. And, and she was like, I would like I don't believe that it's a girl. Like, I've been doing this a long time, and I've come to know the difference between a girl writer and a guy writer. I would like to meet this girl, this so-called girl. So we had a meeting and uh, just really hit it off. She was great. I was scared to death because I just, I don't know why, because I thought she was going to, like, die or be mean. Or, yeah, I don't know. But uh, she, was, she was amazing, and she was like, sorry, I thought you were a man. You're right. You know, and, and she really explained herself nicely. She was just like, it's just there, you know, to, to her, she said, there's like, um, 
this self-consciousness that you don't have that girls often have, like where at the last minute they're like, I'm going to pull back on this and be a little bit ladylike, and you just, you didn't have that. Like, you went for it, and so that's why I thought you were a guy, and, you know, which I thought was, I thought was okay and, and a good explanation. And, you know, and she said, don't, don't, ever, don't ever do that. Don't ever back down and become ladylike. Like, don't, fight that instinct if you ever start to feel it. This was in my wedding vows also. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I was hired to work for her on this pilot, which didn't end up going, and, um, but we just, you know, had developed a relationship from that, mm-hmm. and so it's a lot of, like, the funniest thing is when she'll, like, call our house, and our kids will answer the phone, and they'll be like, it's, it's some, it's Joan River, it's a lady saying her name is Joan, and so I'll get calls being like, hey, I'm doing an audience with the Queen of England, so can you write some jokes that won't upset the Queen, you know, or, um... Do you, do you pull back on those? <laughs> It's it's a lot of research. Then you're like, oh my god. I mean, the poor queen. I don't know. But um, but my favorite call of all time from her was that one time she called the house and Matt came in and he said, oh god, Joan Rivers is on the phone. And I was like, okay. And then he was like, she sounds like she might be crying. And I was like, oh okay, okay. So I got on the phone. I was like, hey, what's going on? And she was indeed crying. And she said, um. You know my dog, the one that had three legs, the one that I rescued. And I was like, yes, of course. I've been to her to her home and, and met that dog. And she was like, well, he just died. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, her dog died. And like, I'm the person that she called, like sh- that she's reaching out to. And then she was like, so I need you to write a bunch of three-legged dead dog jokes because I have a show tonight. I'm on my way. <laughs> so just like that's how she is. She's just like you know. She called my dad passed away really suddenly <laughs> and I got a phone call from her like between like the the church and the grave or whatever and she was like uh, hey what's going on do you have a minute and I was actually like I'm actually like between the church and like to bury my dad because he passed away which she knew about on some level but right. uh, and she was like oh how's that going and I was like it's, <laughs> it's not great it's not great and then she was like okay well I understand that you're busy today but like tomorrow the, I'm just gonna I'm not gonna take your time now I'm just gonna email you some topics that I might wanna and you know but you're sort of like yeah you know that's how it goes and and I was you know grateful for something oh to focus God. on so that's how that goes she's amazing I recommend her I hope she never dies <laughs> seems likely it's looking good it's, lo- it's looking really good she's definitely gonna die oh Wow. <laughs> well, you heard it here first. All of us will. Everyone in this room is going to die. <laughs> Sorry, right, everyone. Keep things going. Keep things light. Sorry. Sorry. Adult Swim, 2013. Yeah, we peacock death. Uh, Joe. We're all going to die. Yeah. Tell, us, tell us about uh, some of the stuff you were into early on uh, as a consumer of entertainment. What is the stuff that you think influenced you? that you can uh, look at now and say, yeah, there's some of that in my work, or that helps shape my worldview, mm. which is in my work. Um, you know what's weird is I keep coming back to the movie Airplane. Really? I honestly think, yeah, Airplane has this, like, they don't make movies like that anymore, and no. it just has the, it's great. You know, are you grimacing at Airplane? A little bit. They threw every, they did every possible joke imaginable, um, and just, it was un, unrelenting. Yeah. And there's something kind of like, uh, admirable about that, the fact that that stupid movie got made and is like has a lot of jokes in it, and it's sort of it's absurd and it's 
and it's uh, great. And I'll take it back. Um, <laughs> no, there's no. I really. I mean, like when I was growing up, yeah. the, the biggest like Bill Murray was a huge guy. Obviously, everybody loves Bill Murray. Um, but like Airplane and uh, RoboCop. Were like big, big movies for me. Yeah. Well, I, no, I saw something in the two of them that was yeah. like, "There's, there's a comedy in this RoboCop that kids my age, you know, weren't necessarily seeing." But um, and a lot of the stuff that was on uh, was on MTV in those great times, mm-hmm. the state and um, uh, the whole uh, liquid television. A lot of that stuff was like this, just sort of like um, an element of absurdity and kind of dark darkness. Um, I mean, they're also, uh, maybe not RoboCop, but uh, they're joke machines, mm-hmm. right? Which is, uh, a lot of the stuff you've done has been in these very small, like, perfect little jokes, you know? Uh, and, and so it's clearly, I, I can see where that would happen. Just rewatch Airplane. <laughs> no, there's something, it has there's so something many great... impressive about the joke machine. Yeah, Airplane 2 is not very good. Um, but I've only seen Airplane 2. You haven't I've seen o- it? I've only seen Airplane 2. I've never seen Airplane. Oh, okay. <laughs> you have a judgment. Yeah. Um, you turned was... it around on me. You kind of put me on the spot. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> was Airplane's there... the first letter, first movie I could think of. Was there a point in your um, career as someone taking in entertainment and comedy specifically when you realized someone made these and that's something I would like to do? Oh, that's great. No, I don't think so. I really don't think so. Wait, do you know now that people write them? <laughs> it's still, no, it, is, it actually is still kind of a surprise every time. That's like, oh, there's this whole fucking process that has to go into it. And like how much work and like how much uh, fear and anxiety is involved with, with writing for me. I'm and curious about that. Are you one of these writers who kind of avoids it or who there's like a lot of tears and bloodshed or you overwrite? What, what is your process like? I mean, I avoid it like hell, like crazy. Really? Yeah, because I think, I don't know, I, um, I, 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 I bet everybody does this, so I don't know. But I write in spurts, like I won't write for a while, and then I'll sort of like be very, um, what's the word, for writing a lot of stuff that's good at one time. <laughs> prolific, yeah. I was prolific yesterday, not today. Um, and um, they'll be eloquent on a different day. Um, but it's sort of like, so it kind of, like, I, I think I have to build up, a, I have to kind of build it up for myself to be able to s- sit down and, and write stuff out. And then otherwise, it's just a series of Word documents with literally one sentence really? on them. And then eventually it kind of all, I just have to trust that it all comes out. But it kind of t- exhausts me and takes a lot out of me. And so I, I think I'm s- kind of scared to um, enter that degree of focus maybe there is like a physical aspect to it uh you know when you're when you're really pounding on on one of these documents i would imagine uh so i can see why you'd avoid it yeah (laughs) hate it (laughs) steven do you like writing uh no i um we get very few writers on these panels who like writing. i very i very much when i decided to become a writer because i was like a failed actor I very much decided to become a student of not just the industry, but the activity. And so one of my number one favorite things to hear, it's like porn to me, is people's writing habits. I find it fucking fascinating. I love it. And I, I feel like everyone fucking lies. You always, like, I read these things in, like, New York Times. Like, when do you write? And it's always like, oh, I write best from 
4 a.m. to 11. And then I take a walk. And then I write from 1 to 8 p.m. And I consider that a good day, and I pat myself. Oh, fuck you. No, bullshit. Like, it's, it's very um, hit and miss. I do love, I do love um, creating things. I am a, a deadline. Uh, I, I need deadlines. I, I just can't do it without it. Um, working on a, a weekly TV show is a deadline machine, and you, so you have those, and you, you don't have the mental um, real estate to spend a lot of time on things. Um, when I'm right, I mean, I started out in features, so when I'm writing a movie alone, for th- and I have fucking forever until I have no money left. It's fucking awful. Like, it's absolutely awful. I maybe get, like, two hours in, and then, I don't know, there's lunch. There's, like, a lot of pornography on the internet. You'll never get to the end of it. I'll never get to the end of it. I'm still on, like, the seas. And, uh... Stupid chapter. It's very... Do you have that thing where you, like, you reward yourself with masturbation and then you're exhausted? And you're just like, ah... Enough pornography? Three pages. (laughs) Oh, you write a little bit. You're like, I can take a little break here, treat myself to something, and then... Treat myself. You know, and... and, uh, I'll just clear my head and fall asleep. Yeah, that's why cafes are great. Yeah, you go in the bathroom and... It's really hard to jerk off at that... Starbucks, um, not possible. I've seen people do it. Yeah. Yeah. We all have. It's hard. Um, when I, 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 I knew getting you guys on the panel would lead to the truth about writing. <laughs> no, I mean writing is writing is terrible. Writing is stupid. It's self-indulgent. Uh, it feels bad. Wait, um, you're not doing God's work. No, oh, no, 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 no. And to parse the perfect sentence, uh, you know, fuck off. I mean, not really. I mean, you can. Um, but when I, I wrote a couple novels, and for me it was a thousand words a, a day. That was that's, it. So it was math. That's still really good. <laughs> but it's not. It's not that much because maybe I'm sloppy. But a thousand words. You, it's about three pages, maybe yeah. four pages, yeah. in Word, which is a terrible program. <laughs> the new ribbon. Oh God! Don't get me started. Uh, and then you're done. And you're done. And in eighty days. You will have a novel. There will be a novel on your computer. But it's, it's almost impossible to sit down and do that thousand words. Well, in, but you give yourself treats. <laughs> we are all lab rats, and we are all treat-based and reward-based. I truly believe that. Oh, yeah. And if you give yourself a reward at the end of those thousand uh, words, uh, you will do them. Yeah. And sometimes your reward is you get to get up. Sometimes stop doing that. Or go back to the seas and you porn. They, I mean, or or yeah, or, or stop doing it or whatever. But um, go back to the seas. Wow. <laughs> Earlier the as a callback, I said I was at the sea. I'd only gotten through seas. Oh, okay. I we, we had a nice little run left. Yeah. No, that was okay. <laughs> Um, Would anybody, I wonder, at this table write if you were like, if if there were, if you could never have an audience or there would never be an audience? Do you think you would still write? Yeah, I write short stories. (laughs) But don't you force people to read them? It's it's pretty much assumed that there's no audience. Everyone says they do. No, I would not. I would not. Wouldn't you? I don't think I would. But but what's the alternative? What would you do? Talk to myself. I uh, do panels. (laughs) <laughs> it's taken, Joe. 
want to be on them. I don't want to host a panel. But do you do you mean uh, the the writer thing of I, I can literally not do anything else? Well, you know, this actually came up on the earlier panel that yeah. you know so many writers are compelled to write. You do it because you have to do it. I mean, Hader was saying he would do this. He, he could be working in an office somewhere, which is the job that writers make up when they can't think of a real person's job. <laughs> I would work in an office somewhere. And he would write short stories and no one would see them. But I'd work at the firm of office, office, and office. <laughs> Whatever that is. Right. Um, you know, do you guys have that compulsion? Let's get into the psyche of it. Well, I, I, I think anyone who, who has found a way to make a living solely at writing has done a lot of writing for no money. Mm-hmm. For no audience, necessarily. But there's a goal there. There's a goal to get out of this horrible fucking temp job I'm working at. That's a good, um, at an office. What? At an office. Yes, at an office. <laughs> uh, office, office, Well, office. I don't even mean people consuming your work, but just anybody who can say, that's good or that's bad, if you don't have that at all. I just don't know that my, my uh, sort of inherent... Uh, vocation of expression is to write. I think I use it as a a way to communicate in certain formats, but I would rather just like talk. <laughs> off, really, like I, you know, as a you don't blame me. It's, yeah. a, it's a means to get praise and love and validation. Absolutely. Like I'm not saying that. Is. I'm not an asshole. Yeah. I'm just saying <laughs> no. Like I, I use it because yeah. Not yeah. not just for that, but well, but to express oneself. But I think in the end. We all just kind of like the laughs and the pats on the back, sort of, right? I think even if you were just, if you somehow could imagine yourself not being read in your lifetime, you'd still write just so that somebody imaginary in some far-off future would read your stuff someday. There would be no point to writing unless there was someone to read it. I just, yeah. Yeah. I I think we can all agree with that. I hope so. Yeah. Okay, so we all agree it's terrible, but we're doing it because we want approval from the outside. Okay. I want to talk for a minute about uh, writing for characters. Uh, And, Matt, I want to start with you because I just got finished reading your book of short stories. Oh, thank you. Um, And it was so impressive. It's so great. That's Jenna's turn clapping. Go go check out uh, the book of Right and Wrong. Um, There's some dark shit in there. There is some dark shit in there. I look so clean and happy. You do. Well, th- and that's the thing. I mean, I told these guys when we sat down, I don't know you, uh, oh. except from Twitter. Yeah. Um, and it's even reading the book, though, I felt that this is not Matt. You know, these are characters. Yeah, yeah. Um, tell me about inhabiting these characters. Tell me about, you know, m- creating these worlds and making them talk. Um, how, how difficult is that for you? How do you get into the, the heads of these humans? Uh, <laughs> um, and the same question is coming to you guys. About oh, it's a struggle. Um, no, it's, it's, it's hard. Because, you, I mean, the, the basic thing is that you have to be, you have to be dead honest. And, and um, you know, when you hear people saying, you know, write what's true, write something true, I think that's such a... I, on one hand, I think that's such a horseshitty expression that people make up to sound important. And impressive, but on the other hand, it, it, if you can bend it to, to make it make sense, you write what's true for your character, and so you honor the character. So if I have an idea of oh, there's a you know at the school that my kids go to, there's this guy who has been telling everyone he was in jail, and he seems super proud of it. And then what if that guy you know and that guy has like a curious following among 
the mom's there in our really wealthy town. <laughs> and so I started thinking, like, what if just one day there's, like, a falling out for some reason and he tells his kid to do something terrible to the other kids or to one of the other kids? That's what happens one of the stories, actually the title story. Um, and then I followed that. So I just I started with this image. I had this image of, of a dad telling his kid to do something terrible to another kid on the playground, and then I followed it backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, so it generally starts with, um, with an image and, or a, a really distinct scene in my mind, and then I sort of follow it backwards. But you always got to think of, like, what does this person really want? Like, what do they think they want, and what do they actually want? Because those are two very different things, and you have to know both things. Um, and that's something I tell my students all the time. Um, the other thing I tell my students is that when, when people say write what you know, they don't mean if you've only worked at a grocery store, don't just write grocery store <laughs> stories. It means, to me, I take it, again, that's one of those things I bend to mean something important to me, which is, uh, is there any way I can identify with this character? I've never sent my kid to do something terrible, but have I sent my kid to do something that I knew was maybe not the best thing to do? Or have I done something as a parent that's been really just really questionable in hindsight. Yes, I have. Of course of course, I have. Casey's nodding her head vigorously. Casey's nodding her head vigorously. You know. Uh, and, so, I and so you can you. apply that to the character. I w- yeah, I want to interrupt one sec because I want to get really specific. Okay, um, sure. And I apologize for you guys who haven't read the book, but you will. Hurry after. up. Um, <laughs> there, there's a, quite a, a long story in the middle uh, about the social worker. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> who, you know, these are... Maybe you can tell them a little bit about the story, but I want to hear about specifically how did you attach to these characters? Because these are sort of difficult characters who don't always mean well. Yeah. I I get interested in characters who make horrible, horrible decisions, Mm -hmm. and then we see what happens as a result of those things. For me, that's what I'm interested in in fiction, is I want to see... That's why I love, like, Walter White in Breaking Bad... He's given an out in the first season. His former partners want to set him up and and take care of him financially, and he chooses not to take that because he's so full of pride that he can't conceive of ever doing such a thing. And now we're in, what, season five, I guess, or, you know, about to go into season six, and you can see where that's gotten him. You know, it's such a clear line. It's such a brilliantly written show. I love stuff like that. Like, I love an active character. And active doesn't always mean, you know, again, students oftentimes mean it, you know, take it to mean someone's going to be kicking down doors or, you know, or fucking somebody constantly. An active character... (laughs) Thanks, Joe. (laughs) An active character for me is is somebody who's who's, who's just a little bit, uh, who's blind to all the possibilities and sees only the thing that they want, you know, and then they just plow ahead and do whatever they're going to do and then... The chips fall, and so the the story that uh, that Ben's talking about is one called "Failure to Thrive," which weirdly enough came from something I'd written for. I was the graduate speaker uh, for my my graduating class at Bennington at the MFA program. It was a very good speech. It was a, thank you, uh, and I wrote a weird, a really weird speech. It was this kind of meta speech where I wrote, I was, I, w- I got up and spoke, and I was pretending to be someone who was studying the work of Matt Debenham, the writer. Uh, who had killed himself with a crossbow uh, after consuming an eight ball of cocaine um, at a, in a game of medieval roulette, um, and uh, uh, and then I was like, you know, it was, it was a it was a bigger thing to look at at, at you know what do you do with an MFA. Uh, and one of the things that was in there was a kid who was uh, was the idea of this guy building birdhouses to trap birds with glue traps 
and then blow them up. Um, and I, I ended up writing a story about a kid who, who builds birdhouses with no window. Uh, which, which is such a strange... It's a spoiler now. But it's such it's a, a strange it's right. it's reveal that is so part and parcel to the piece, though. I mean, yeah. in... Obviously, in any other story, it would have seemed so bizarre and, and horrible. And it's still bizarre and horrible, but it absolutely fits within that world you've created. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I don't know what you're waiting for. Uh, Casey, talk to us about writing for some of these characters for whom you've written. Uh, Rosie, Paul F. Tompkins Rosie character. Letterman, Paul F. Tompkins. That's, well, I, I gotta say, this, that's really a thing. Like she, she can get anyone's voice. That's the terrifying It's thing. a great trick. It's, it's amazing, the yeah. way she gets the voice. I feel like um, it's something that I'm kind of proud of, and I don't, I don't really uh, take a lot of time to, to be proud of a, a lot of the things that I do, but it's something that like if I were to toot my own horn, I would say that seems to be an, an ability that I have to sort of... Um, you know, I, I could never do an actual physical impression of someone, but I can make, I can create an impression of someone. So that's useful in a way where I'm sort of able to, you know, to work for a person and get their voice. You know, just as I learned, like, first thing, you know, you got to get, get someone's voice. And, and so, um, so yeah, so it's a lot, you know, it's a lot like I imagine a Daryl Hammond watches you know, videotapes of someone that, you know, I just watch very closely and, um, and, uh, just, you know, try to, try to sort of be that person, like almost like an actor would, like I'm, I'm being this person. And, um, when it gets really exciting is when you're able to sort of have this relationship with the person that you're working with. And then you'll notice that they start to become you a little bit like you're a thing working together you know um when i when i worked for dave letterman i was very young woman i was not a not a full staff writer on the show i was his assistant (laughs) we never never did it that was the girl after me that took that replaced me when i moved on um but uh i i did do some writing for him, even though I wasn't, because that was what I wanted to do, and you know, um, I could tell stories and stories about that. But one one thing that was really exciting for me one day is um, I noticed that he was do you know he's doing the monologue, and I would stand off to the stage with his cup of coffee, waiting for him to need coffee, and uh, and he just said like some dumb word that I was using around the office, like in silliness or whatever. And I was like, oh my God, he's becoming me too. (laughs) Like that's very, it was very exciting. And there was no way to sort of like celebrate that without sounding like a fucking lunatic being like, he listens to me. He hears the words I say. Uh, But he did. And it was, you know, I was kind of jazzed about that. And then that's where it sort of, I was, I realized that, you know, I could create this impression of a person um, by studying them very closely. But over time, if you gain their trust, you can also (laughs) make an impression on that person. And hopefully, you know, it's like a successful back and forth kind of thing. It's amazing. I I remember, no, I just, it's jogged memory when Norm MacDonald started doing David Letterman on Saturday Night Live she, the thing she would hone in on was she was like he's doing the walk he's got his walk perfectly and I'm like how do you notice someone's walk but she knows the walks well, I, of everyone yeah I was going to ask about you know any one of these people that you've written for that you want to choose specifics on but you know tell me about studying that person watching the tapes and 
what what are you picking out from say a Rosie or from from Paul or something like that? Um, Rosie, it was sort of easy just because she was so plain spoken about like this is what I want. And one thing that cracked me up endlessly with her is that people would always be like, are you, like they would sometimes ask, is she do you, is she mad at me? Or the, sometimes they would get the balls to be like, are you mad at me? And she would launch into this, like, for the thousandth time, this is my face. Like, this is just <laughs> what my face looks like when I'm not on TV. I'm not the queen of nice. I just have this face. This is what I look like. I'd like you or else I'd fire you. You know, so it was uh, a lot of that. So I just, enjoy, like, I really just was like, you know, she's laying it on the line. She's telling you what you want. It's my job to go and do or get the thing that she wants. With Dave, Dave, as I said, I wasn't a full staff writer, but that's really where I learned every fucking thing from that guy. I was such a bumpkin when I came um, to be, I was his intern Mm -hmm. starting out, and uh, the only requirement to be his intern was to be able to drive a stick shift, and I couldn't do it. And it was the only internship left, and I was like, that's it, you know? And uh, in the end, he ended up, like, you know, his office ended up calling and saying, you know, Dave says he, he wants you to be his intern. Um, he says you're a smart girl. You'll figure out some way around driving the stick shift or whatever. So, um, but you and never did. I never did. Well, yeah, I never learned to drive it, but I figured out a way around it. And uh, so the way that I learned, but I learned everything from him, manners. I, I know it's weird to say about a guy that's like known now for a sex scandal with um, with a young woman, but I learned I, like he would do crazy things that I just thought were crazy, and it turns out they were manners. Like that's how little I knew. I was like, like what? Like he would always sort of like, like when you were walking down the street, he would like jockey to get into a certain position, and I was like, do you have OCD? What's wrong with you? And he was like, that's a gentleman like goes to the outside of the sidewalk so the lady doesn't get hit with rocks from carriages. <laughs> Did you guys Which know that? It's really like yeah, I've no, never. I didn't know that's at any second, a horse could throw a yeah. shoe. So, you know, so that's the kind I of I always guy... tell my wife it's so I get hit by a car first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's oh. similar. It's similar. But he was, you know, he's a gentleman like that and very old school. And so um, when he hired me to be his assistant, um, one of the things that I took over was his personal correspondence, which he's really, really wow. big on, writing letters. Um, and it's a big deal. And you get an old school typed letter at the time that we were not allowed to to do it on a dot matrix printer it had to be and uh you know so after i've been doing those letters for a little bit to you know to co-workers but also to really famous people i said you know these are these letters are coming from you can i try to make them funny a little bit like i think people would get a charge out of it to get a funny letter from you and he was like yeah you could try but they better be fucking funny because i'm not gonna mail out a letter that's stupid you know, so uh, yeah, exactly. And he and he would. I would take these stacks of letters into him, and uh, you know, someone would be serious and someone would be jokey. And he would sit like you know a teacher with a red pen and wow. be like. And that's where I learned everything. Where he's like, I see the joke you're trying to make here, but you telegraphed it, and you know, just like really correcting things. And then I'd go back, like taking you know the notes that he'd given me on this note, and uh, and write. And so that's really where I learned. Like he like. He was just very, very generous because it was important to him, too. Mm-hmm. Like, there was something in it for him, but he was very generous with, like, also sort of laying it on the line. Like, this is who I am. This is how I want it. Can you do this? Yes, you can do this. Great. Wow. You know, and there were times when I failed at that spectacularly. So, if, and, you know, that's another story. But <laughs> there was one particular time something really bad happened. Let's get it. Come on. All right. So, um, 
It seems yeah. like you don't want to tell it. No, I do. I I'm mean, really twisting if your Paul arm. were here, he would he would say, "Tell that one about." Okay, so <laughs> right. I'll try to Good. I'll try to tell it without getting myself or anyone in trouble. Um, the Oscar nominations came out, and that would always be a time when uh, the producers would come and be like, "These are the people we want to try to get on the show. Can you um, can you write some letters, like huh. soliciting them to be on the show, personal letters?" So then that would become my job, and I'm writing all these letters from Dave to Oscar nominees with his input. And so, um, leaving Las Vegas, uh, Nicolas Cage was nominated for, for an Oscar, and uh, he was like, ugh, Nicolas Cage is on this fucking list. He, we've asked him to be on the show one fucking million times. He always says no. And then so I was just like, well, what do you want to say in the letter? And he was exasperated at that point because we'd been writing you know, a million letters to whoever. So he was like, I don't fucking care. Write to him, stop being such a not a nice word that I don't want to repeat, and come on my show. So, um, yeah, so I was like, you know, went back to my office and I was like, sit down in my little typewriter and I'm like, well, obviously I can't write that not nice word that Dave said to write to Nicolas Cage. So I was like, okay, I came up with what I thought was like a good alternative and typed up my little letter and put it in the stack of many, many letters and brought it into him and he went over them and he made corrections on some and signed a bunch and then I would, I had this system where I would photocopy it with the envelope so I had the address and file it away in a binder because this is like pre, you know, everything. And uh, just so I could, you know, because he would often be the kind of guy to be like, hey, I want to remember what I said to that person. So I mailed everything off, and then a couple days later, he was like, hey, we got to write that letter to uh, Nicolas Cage. And I was like, no, no, we did it. And he was like, really? I don't, what did we say? And by that point, I'd written also another million letters. So I was like, I, I honestly can't remember. Let me get it out of the binder. Oh, no. So I go, and I get the binder, and I take the little paper out, and I'm like, oh, remember you said that thing? And I was like, I can't say that. So I was like, dear Nicholas, stop being such a woman and come on my show and sent it. But I don't know. What, I mean, I don't think it's that big a deal, but he fucking freaked the fuck out. Like, you you cannot have sent that letter to Nicholas Cage saying stop being such a woman. It's like, you can't. He was like, you, you must get that letter back. And I was just like, oh my God. Like, all of a sudden, it's a terrible sitcom. I was going to say, I'd watch that movie. Yeah, and so he was like... I don't care what you have to do. If you have to invoke the assistance code, you must have a code. You must get it back. And so I just spent my whole day at my desk, like trying to get in touch with Nicolas Cage's people and being like, I'm going to fucking get fired over the stupid. Like, I didn't even think it was a big deal, but he thinks it's such a huge deal. And I just couldn't even look him in the eye. And at the end of the day, I had to be like, I couldn't get it back. I could, I, you know, I got a hold of someone in his office and he's already seen it. I couldn't get back. So, you know, and I was expecting him to just be like, you know, pack your shit and go. And he just turned on his heel, silently walked out. And I was like, this will be the last time I ever see this guy. And uh, so I came in very quietly early the next morning and I'm sitting in my office. And then all of a sudden this gigantic arrangement of roses comes floating down the hallway. And, uh, you know, I rushed to go see who it's from. And uh, it's from Nicolas Cage saying, Dave, you're right. I've decided to stop being such a woman and come on your show. And so I was just like, oh, same. And it was like, it was very exciting. And I felt like, you know, I just, you know, I didn't, I didn't celebrate it too much. But um, but Nicholas Cage came on the show and showed the letter. And Dave was like, I never wrote that letter. I have no idea who wrote that. That was not my signature. So it was like, it was a good thing. But I came really close sure. to getting fired. Oh my God, that's unbelievable. <laughs> Well, it's same time. thing happened to me. It's all the time. <laughs> <laughs>
Joe, uh, do tell us about writing again in character. I'm I'm specifically curious about uh, work on the Onion. You know. The Onion that I think we have a general idea of is from that uh, This American Life story, where they went inside and it was you know it was a real writer's room. Right. Uh, but it's also such a very specific voice that The Onion has. Uh, is that a difficult voice to capture? Is it a difficult character to capture? How do you approach it, or how did you approach it? Rather, well, at The Onion, the yeah, that was actually the hardest thing I think was um, people who could write. It's basically it was restraint. Um, because I think you know when people come in and test for to try to write something, they might write good headlines, and I actually could never write good headlines. I, really? It was really rare that I um, I suck at writing. I suck at writing headlines. <laughs> um, no, it just it was something that never quite came nat- as naturally for me as it did for others. So, um, <clears throat> but luckily I was the boss. Um, <laughs> but people might write good headlines, and then you would ask them to write a story, and it would just be filled with like. Joke jokes, like really jokey jokes. It's hard to to learn how to write something sort of flat. This was very much based on the idea that we're it's emulating a newspaper's format, which is just state the facts as evenly and simply as possible. And that's where 90% of the humor comes from for The Onion. But that's a difficult thing to learn. And then once you learn it, it's also a difficult thing uh, to master. Um, so that would, I mean, that is just sort of the thing too, where it's like, you either have that or you don't. And then you can learn how to, like, you could teach people how to write an Onion story. You could teach them the structure. You could teach them sort of what jokes work and what ones don't and the, the whole vernacular and, and language and system that was developed there over 20 years. You could learn the mechanics. But if people didn't have that sort of innate understanding that an Onion story needs to be kind of understated, then they just wouldn't, it wouldn't work. And, you know, there were many hilarious people who, would try to write stuff for the onion and just never landed. What uh, was it a tell me about the learning curve for you? Did it come fairly easily? Uh, you know, headlines aside, did the style come fairly easily to you or was it something that you did have to, you know, immerse yourself in and then learn? Well, uh, luckily I was hired as an editor, so I was hired as an assistant editor and un- you were right. Mhm. Oh, I, I was never I was never a member of the writing staff. Right. Uh, I wrote because we would all write, but I was hired as an assistant editor, so I was hired by Scott Dickers, mm-hmm. who was um, editor in chief before me, and now he's the general manager of the Onion in Chicago. So he sort of like he would literally have me um, edit stuff with uh, you know with track changes in Word, and he would go and either approve them or not, and then make me look at them, and um, he would print out you know copies of the paper and make his changes in. in and marker, and then I would have to do them. Like he was very oh, patient, wow. sort of like, "Here is how you do it." So I sort of learned it by just default, you know. But I think my, you know, my general style of comedy is is kind of dry and uh, of that nature. So it wasn't it wasn't that hard yeah. for me. But I sort of learned from the top down as opposed to the bottom up. So I don't know how it is for those poor schmucks. <laughs> yeah, seriously, I imagine it's much harder for them. You know, you got to immerse yourself in. The final product, really. I mean, yeah, this is what they're looking for. Um, can you just very quickly to backtrack a little? Um, the, the the phrase that "jokey jokes" comes up quite a bit when we talk uh, to comedy writers. Can you tell the listeners what we mean when we refer to that? Thank you. 
Um, it's just something that, I mean, you know, I think, I don't know, the basis of comedy is sort of uh, things are going along and then there's a surprise. And that makes you, that makes you laugh because it's unexpected. It changes some shape or expectation. And people who are like, I know, it's almost like knowing the punchline before you kind of know the setup. Like, this will be a joke because it has these five elements that I've seen in the past that add up to being a joke. <laughs> so it's something that I think like it maybe lacks artfulness and maybe lacks even a little bit of, uh, of heart and, and uh, finesse. But stuff that's just like, oh, that's a joke. It's mainly you've seen it, you've seen it before a lot of times. There's nothing really surprising about it, right. yeah. I guess. No, that's that's a great that's way. To, well, that's the thing that I always that always astonished me about the Onion is that is that there is a lot of heart in it, and it, there's a lot of like there's a real that 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 whole sort of you know again that write what you know like I feel like when someone's writing about you know there was a story in there uh, years ago about uh, you know dad make I forget the headline but it's like you know dad making inappropriate sexual comments to mom during the car ride, <laughs> hoping the kids don't notice you know, and it's and it's just like it's like that's something. Perhaps I haven't experienced, but that's something that, you know, yeah, that's something that, that, you know, you're like, oh, that I could nearly have done that as a guy. Like, that's, mm-hmm. it's so close to, and the Onion stuff was always like that, and the best Onion stuff was always like that, or it was like, there was, there was like some stuff that's like desperately sad. Yeah. That's also Yeah, I mean, hilarious. I think it was never, you know, it tried to, the Onion tries to never take the wrong side or never um, pick on the, the victim. And I think that's where that kind of heart comes from and where, and where I'm definitely really interested. Similarly to, I think, what Matt was talking about, is like whenever I'm writing character, try, I kind of start from like a dark place that, feel, that, start, that seems a little irredeemable and then try to like dig somebody out of a, of a hole. Yeah. And sort of, you know, often through humor because that's how I've done it in my life, but sort of see if you can see like, oh, that person's a human. And I think it's because I've had so many... M- bad thoughts in my life that are just like dark yeah. gross thoughts no, it's true. that I will need and want to believe that I'm normal so I have this like uh, compulsion to kind of play devil's advocate for you know um, no serious crimes no kids are animals but <laughs> but like dark, dark stuff like I'll be really forgiving of somebody who you know in my mind like well let's see if we can figure out why that happened um because I think there's just something really interesting there. Like, how do you start in this mm-hmm. gross place and then make them into, like, a yeah. sympathetic person? Well, we always, person. Casey and I always just, around the house, we just have discussions, like, you know, I think one of the things Casey said to me once is, can you imagine being a pedophile? Like, can you imagine how awful that must be because you're surrounded? Like, if you're, you know, if you're addicted huh. to cocaine, you can avoid cocaine places, you know, or cocaine, <laughs> cocaine situations. Places. <laughs> cocaine uh, huts. You know, t- two doors down. Uh, but, you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're a sex addict or if you're a pedophile or something, you can't avoid that. It's, mm-hmm. it's everywhere. And so how do you deal with that? And that's, that's the kind of stuff that really, yeah. That, can, that, can you think, uh, Joe, of anything specifically you did for The Onion that kind of started in a place like you're describing and, and was a successful piece, you think? Um, well, oh, I did want to say that it, with the character thing, I got to yes. write the uh, little thing we did for uh, J.D. Salinger uh, when he died. We wrote something in the voice of J.D. Salinger, and I was such a huge fan of of Salinger growing up that that was, like, the best (laughs) moment of my writing career to get to do that and have people say, like, that sounded like him. It was... um, 
I wanted to say when, when you were talking and uh, I didn't I get just, to, I but now talking. I did. I know, I'm sorry. And it's really cool that I said that and that I got to do that. I was going to say something nice about you, and then I was like, I talked a lot, so. Oh, yeah. Thank you. But I, what I was going to say is that Joe is like, you're... You're a sweetheart as well. You're, he's a very deep feeler. Like you might have these sick thoughts, but a lot of, in my experience, I think with you're just you, a dark thought. In my experience with you, you just, you do you have a very sweet, tender heart. And mm-hmm. um, I'm just thinking of the afternoon that Balloon Boy. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, well, America watched Balloon Boy for whatever reason. Joe and I were locked in an IM conversation about we. Nobody in America wanted Balloon Boy to make it more than oh. Joe. And I. This was in the hour and a half that I thought Balloon Boy was real. We thought he was real. We thought he was in there, and we were like, "Oh no, no, no!" Like that's that's our IM. No, no, no! This can't be happening. No, and we bought it wholehearted. We were not. I was disgusted with humanity for the way people were kind of because all I could imagine was him up in the sky with the wind rushing through his face like <laughs> being six scared he must we have been were, yeah. we were just in it and I, I feel like we were egging each other on to, to like really just we believed it we didn't doubt for a second we did not question for one second that this could possibly be a crazy story and then the, my favorite cherry on top of that Sunday, that hubris, I feel like, I don't know, um, was like a week later, some baby was pushed onto train tracks or whatever, and Joe tweets, oh no, train baby, I learned my lesson with Balloon Boy. <laughs> oh, God. Broke my heart. Horrible. Um, but, uh, yep, that's it. Balloon Boy. I'll take it. Uh, Steven, tell, tell us a little bit about Weeds. Uh, you did some time there. Um, tell us about getting into these characters, writing specifically for these characters. Well, I mean, I, I think there's a couple of things. One, uh, I trained as an actor, and that makes it easier to get in someone's head. But I do think you do... I mean, the, the number one thing, I think, is that no one thinks they're a villain. Right. And, uh, and so you have to look at every character without judgment. And... You have to then also be really kind of horrible <laughs> in, in that you have to, you have to uh, gain the power to destroy anyone you love in like five sentences to be a good writer. And people you don't know, maybe like seven. <laughs> like I could observe anyone in here and I, could pro- and I may not be exactly accurate, but I could maybe get in their head for a moment and go, maybe, why did I put that sweater on? What was I trying to show the world? Why did I wear those shoes? Why am I sitting like that? Are you doing why, me or him? I, why did I come here Took in general? <laughs> um, and it may not be accurate, but it could be, it could be then a character. It could right. be a voice. And I think you have to be, um, you have to be fascinated with humanity. But you have to be very, very honest about humanity and not not judgmental, but um, but generous. I think with huma- with attributing humanity and and uh, uh, assigning um, humanity to failure and to failings and to weakness. Mm-hmm. And I think that helps. Uh, become a good writer. I think that yeah. that allows you to um, not condescend to your characters, even the bad ones, because you don't see them as bad. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's that's a beautiful. That's great advice. It's a beautiful yeah. distillation of you know the thing we try to do. Um, very quickly, let's go down the line, starting with Matt. Tell us what you are watching on television, what you are reading, what you are putting in your eyes and ears that you are really getting inspired by, or that you're talking to your friends about, or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, I actually, this this one thing we don't share. I love Homeland. She's never seen it. Uh, I I just absolutely absorbed the first <coughs> season in like a two night spree. Uh, like a killing spree, but with watching and, and eating, um, and uh, just loved it. We love. We religiously watch Breaking Bad. Uh, we still watch Dexter, which is great this season. Remarkably good. They made a crazy turnaround and some interesting choices. Um, we watch. I mean, we we just plowed through like older things like Friday Night Lights and The Wire and and uh, Battlestar. What else do we watch? We watch. Uh, we watch some crap too. I mean, yeah. let's let's be honest. Love Revenge. Yeah, we love revenge. Revenge comes up quite a bit, actually. Revenge is great. I think people really it's, think they're. It is it. when you watch when you, you, revenge starts with. Have you, has everyone seen Revenge? No. I mean, no, they're, I, by they're applause, cool. who have seen Check Revenge? It. Okay. I want to. Is that what you just said? <laughs> Keep dreaming. <laughs> um, you know, it starts with this party scene, and the party scene comes back two thirds of the way through the season, and the way that they handle. You're given a lot of clues in the party scene at the, at the very outset of the season, and the way that they handle that two-thirds of the way in, even though all this stuff has developed, is really impressive. Uh, it's a really tightly... I just I, I couldn't believe how tightly plotted a lot of that was. It was just... It's, it's a great... It's tons of fun. We love the great L.A. complex, which... Yeah. Uh, so good, right? It's a really Pay good show. Don't sleep on L.A. complex, I know. everybody. It's, it's one of those shows good. where people are like, can you watch... Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. It's a great show. Really well, well done. And I like um, Boardwalk Empire because I love interesting boobies. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> wait a minute, I'm not familiar with the program. <laughs> In what ways are they interesting? So many boobies. Okay. They're just not your typical, you know, TV boobies. They're like old timey boobies, okay. <laughs> which I think is nice for those ladies to, sure. you know. But God it's also it's beautiful. It's like a beautiful design magazine. Even if you weren't interested at all in what was going on with the story, it's just beautiful, beautiful to look at. If you but gave up halfway through season one, go, go back. back. I it's, gave up halfway through the pilot. I, I got to tell you, go no back. seriously, go it back. really. By the end of season one, you'll be in. Thirteen. That's all it takes. <laughs> Boardwalk Empire. Talking about what did you say, okay. Joe? What are you? What are you watching? What are you enjoying? What are you reading? Um, let's see. I just I just read uh, I Am Legend over the last couple of days, which Richard was really Matheson. great. Yeah, was it, it good? Was surprisingly good. Oh, it was no. like he went from like corny to like profound to corny, and the story explored these things I wasn't expecting it to. And it's about vampires. And- our ten year old is obsessed with every iteration of that because there the first movie was The Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price, which Omega my son Man. loves, and then Omega Man. And then the, his least favorite is actually the Will Smith version. He yeah, loves Omega Man is his number one. I, so much I was, more gonna, stuff I was curious about that. I've never read the story, but I'm curious about why it's inspire. It, it keeps inspiring these iterations. I don't know. You know what? What really caught me about it was that we've all seen you know a person at the end of the world or person in solitude you know building you know uh, pulleys. Right and like various We've systems to keep it right. Yeah, you guys remember? Yeah, that Michael Bay film with all yeah, the pulleys. Uh, the there Pixar pulley film pulleys in the nineties. Um, you guys remember uh, Pulley and Jeeves, the old TV show? Um, 
So he is alone because he's, he's immune to this thing that's taken over the world, and he is just getting drunk like crazy. And I feel like I've, I haven't really seen that in too many, where the, where the main character's like, fuck this. Like, I'm drinking a lot. And he still has, like, he's, you know, he's boarded up his house and stuff. I just thought that was such an interesting place to start, where in the story he kind of, like, deals with his drinking problem. Uh, and it's like, yeah, I fit that in there. He also explains all the mythology of vampires and why it's, you know, what the sort of scientific or psychological basis is for it. So uh, I enjoyed that. And I finally got around to reading David Foster Wallace, uh, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. I read right before that. Yeah. And um, like that's good. <laughs> well, you know, it's it was good. ups and downs, right? Yeah, it's I didn't really... care for the tennis one. I did, it just it got too mathy. Oh, me. I just just the essay, just the uh, the one, the single essay on the cruise ship. Oh, you didn't read what I read? Yeah, I don't read the other things. Don't spoil anything. <laughs> um, Never mind what I said about the math. And um, I don't really watch any uh, TV shows, really, not, not for any reason. But I'm just usually really tired and um, watch Mad Men, and I'll watch and hate uh, Walking Dead because I cannot oh, stop shit. it. What a frustrating show! God, but I won't stop watching it. I can't wait. Yeah. to hate it. I, I assume you've read you've read the comic book. The sure. comic book moves like a motherfucker. Yeah. You know, I don't know. It's very interesting. We talked to the uh, Glenn Mazzara on the show yeah, yeah. last year, and um, it seems like now that Glenn is in charge, it will. It has a great have moments. A little momentum. They're, they're going to be at the prison now. I have high hopes for yeah. all this. But I'm really interested mostly in watching horror movies and documentaries, and not really what? any comedy for, for whatever reason. I don't uh, really most consume comedy, comedy at all. Yeah. Are you, are you a comedy guy? Do you watch comedies as a comedy writer? Uh, yeah, but I like documentaries. Do you know? But but about The Walking Dead. Yeah. Do you know how much zombies cost to put on the screen? <laughs> That's true. That's Fucking zero dollars. <laughs> and their first season, the finale, had zero zombies in it. <laughs> zero. It had a guy going crazy and then bad CGI blow up, and that was it. <laughs> zombies cost nothing. Makeup. There's makeup. Um, uh, wait, I have one more follow-up for yeah. Joe before we move on. Uh, for horror movies... Uh, what do you what do you like? You know, give me give me two or three that you like. Ah, uh, yes. Hmm. Um, well, I have this. I'm in this kind of search to find the movie that will scare me, like um, like uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre did when I was a kid. And no movie has ever replicated that. Just dirty, gross. Yeah. It's like sort of not really very polished or well done. Visceral yeah. fear of that. Um, but uh, I've enjoyed uh, nothing. I haven't enjoyed any movies, horror movies. <laughs> no, most of them kind of terrible. Most of them disappoint me. Yeah. Not, but I enjoy some of them. Uh, I just can't think of any. I'll email you. All right, perfect. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. <laughs> uh, Wait till our published email think. correspondence comes out. I'll read those out loud. And, um, I read a couple books. Uh, Beautiful Ruins is one I read recently. I don't know that. And Where Have You Gone, Bernadette, which is sort of a takedown of Seattle. Because, come on, fuck you, Seattle. <laughs> it's time. Uh, yeah, they're doing A chick who wrote on Arrested Development wrote that, and it was actually really good. I liked it a lot. Um, I, uh, in New York, uh, I don't really have a TV. Um, I'm re- I'm Everyone like, in New York says that, by the way. So. No, no. I, <laughs> I fucking lo- all my life is TV, <laughs> but I'm subletting a place and it has a projector, and the remote is infrared and it doesn't work, so I have to go to like bars to watch baseball, and so I just 
I fucking love TV. So I have to watch shows like I have to have my writer's assistant send me illegal downloads to Louie. Um, so I'm watching Louie, which I enjoy. I watch Parks and Rec on, uh, I guess, NBC.com, maybe? I don't know. Something. Yeah, I think it's that or Hulu. And uh, I, I just finished The Newsroom, which... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Gave me such pleasure. Should have been more zombies. More zombies. But that show gave me such pleasure because I kind of hate it so much, but I kind of love it. Absolutely. It's kind of like it's kind of like when I when I pet my cat right on the base of its tail. It's like, oh fuck you, oh, oh. feel so fuck you. I hate you. That's the newsroom. Um, yeah, and then I see whatever I see movies. I read the New York Times. It's kind of fun to read. You have to brag. Yeah, I like I like reading the wedding uh, and 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 rating the best and worst couples on Sundays. If you don't do that, you're missing out. Please give a round of applause to our panelists: Stephen Falk, Joe Randazzo, Casey St. Ange, and Matt Debenham. Thanks to everyone here at 61 Local. Uh, and give a round of applause to Rachel, who helped me put this together. She did all the work. Uh, Thank thanks you, to 826 LA and to Kate Mikuchi for doing our theme song. Good night. Now leaving Nerdist.com.